0: Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I am thrilled to welcome today's guest, the incredible Cynthia Bourgeau, an Episcopalian priest and modern-day mystic who has written several books that have changed my life. Symbiotica is one of the fastest-growing health and wellness companies in the country. Which seems well-deserved as they use only clean, premium ingredients in their formulas, which means no seed oils, no fillers, no additives, and no artificial ingredients. I really like Symbiotica because many of their formulations are liquid or liposomal, which means that you can literally squirt a pouch of their vitamin C into your mouth and head out the door. It's legitimately delicious. Or if it's their vanilla cream-flavored magnesium, you can squirt a pouch into your mouth, brush your teeth, and go to bed. No sleepy girl mocktail required. They have a delicious berry flavored bioavailable B12 that you simply pump into your mouth along with a citrus berry flavored glutathione, an adaptogenic brain health blend that's vanilla chai flavored, and pretty much everything else that you're likely looking for in the vitamin aisle to add to your routine. Though you don't actually need to find a vitamin aisle because Symbiotica ships straight to your door via subscription, which amplifies the convenience factor essential for me when it comes to establishing routines that I can set and forget. This year is your year. Are you ready to feel the results? Head over to symbiotica.com and use code THREAD for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. That's symbiotica.com, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com and use code THREAD for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the Thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow.
1: We are in a a time where everything that we think we have taken for granted in terms of human achievement, human conscience, human goodness are being turned upside down. And to reclaim them, you know, to reclaim them is is an act of courage personally, but also depends to an extent on having a roadmap broad enough and receptive enough to receive the help that's coming to us from a wider world that we're not even aware of anymore, for which this this planet is in its own funky way, the eye of the needle. There's something really precious and really painful, really difficult about our walk here and everybody knows it. But we can reach for hope. So says
0: Cynthia Bourgeau, an Episcopalian priest and modern-day mystic who is one of the most fascinating thinkers on the planet today. She has written many, many books, books that have reordered my understanding of the world and what we're all doing here. Her book on Mary Magdalene, The Meaning of Mary Magdalene, Discovering the Woman at the Heart of Christianity, Reconceived the Way I Understood Early Christianity, and then the Wisdom Jesus, the Holy Trinity, and the Law of Three, and the Eye of the Heart have each brought me deeper into an understanding of consciousness and non-duality. Ultimately, Cynthia is a mapmaker, a mapmaker who can put context around experience and point us toward where we all need to go. While she leads retreats and lectures all over the globe, in her earlier life, Cynthia was a student and then a colleague of Father Thomas Keating, the founder of the Centering Prayer Movement. Cynthia worked intently with this pioneering tradition, which seeks to unite wisdom traditions and teachers from across the globe. Cynthia is an emeritus faculty member at the Center for Action and Contemplation, which is Richard Rohr's organization. Her mind is complex, so listen closely. She is incredible. Okay, let's get to our conversation. I have to say, though, Cynthia, I was overwhelmed in thinking about how to use your time well and efficiently, because I have read you deeply, and I love all of your work. So I'm, it's like, do we go in Mar- towards Mary Magdalene, or do we go towards Eye of the Heart and Gurdjieff and or do we go to the Wisdom Jesus? But maybe we start here. This is in the Eye of the Heart, where you talk about, in 2015, receiving a powerful cosmic nudge And you went into Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, and you talked about how you felt it was essential to join work with other schools at a similar vibrational level level, in order to help hold a collective energy field sorely needed on a planet about to undergo a major (laughs) contraction. Quite prophetic. I don't even know if we're in the contraction, but it seems like we're heading towards the contraction. So maybe we start there, like whatever feels urgent to you and- I agree with you, this need to sort of collect everyone feels essential.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good starting point, at least, because it allows me to also sort of put a context around some of the work that I've been doing, which which if you just approach it as an isolated piece, it can often sound really esoteric. I mean, I don't know how many people are going to want to tune in from way off when they've got, you know pressing, pressing things to do in their life to listen to imaginal realms and Gurdjieffian teaching. I mean, it sounds a little abstract. And so I think that what's really, really needed is to set the very, very specific and urgent social, planetary, and environmental concern in which I'm bringing this teaching forth. Because it's, it's not just to fill up the airspace with exotic, esoteric possibilities but because i really sense that there's some tools implicit in these teachings that that we don't have accessible to us in the culture and are driving us deeper and deeper into a hole so the prophecy actually got uh, you know what i that the cosmic nudge part a <laughs> began with that prompt to start dip into cod tayar de chardin it says find out about the you know what he's doing, his 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 cosmological take on things. But it really, really hit it was it was not just a cosmic nudge, it was a cosmic being hit by a two by four. The night before the twenty sixteen presidential election, and I I happened to find myself that that day. I think it was November seventh, twenty sixteen, in Wales. I was wrapping up the end of a, like about a three week British tour of teaching with my contemplative and wisdom students, and my host said, "You ever been to Tintern Abbey?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "Only when in my English sophomore English class when I read Word, Wordsworth's poems on lines composed above Tintern Abbey does it really exist." <laughs> Yeah, it's about a half an hour from here. You want to go see it? So I hopped in the car with her and come to find out somehow in all my English literature approach to this, I'd never really quite realized before that this was a Trappist monastery. You know, the same order that Thomas Merton and Thomas Keating and all these great spiritual Catholic giants came from. And that it it had been one of the most powerful spiritual centers in the whole sort of greater British Isles for four centuries, and it was destroyed in one evening of wanton rage as part of the the Henry VIII's essentially desecration of the monasteries. His program to remove traces of all things Catholic from mm. the from the British hierarchy, so that the troops fell upon this monastery burned the roof, carried off monks into, you know, hang some on the spots, Brought some into servitude, smashed everything, pilfered the sacred vessels of the altar. And so there it sat for a while with a gaping hole in the roof and a ruin. And that was the sort of tragically romantic building that William Wordsworth found so appalling, you know, with its vines and, you know, overgrown, looking very, very druidic. And I walked in, it's open for tourists to go some partially through it and they've rebuilt large structures of it. The roof is still not on it and it's mm. all grassy, but there's a remains of a high, the high altar and then the big, what was once the stained glass window behind that altar now opened the sky. And as I walked up to this on this grassy carpet that was had now replaced the stones, I felt more and more the this urging, this this to get down on my knees and finally i found myself full prostrate before Mm. the before the altar the message came that that basically said terrible things happen and that because good has achieved a high watermark does not mean that it can't be taken down in a single act of violence and he says we are into rough times uh hearts will be broken that are not sturdy enough to withstand this because the desecration is real and brutal and horrifying." And she says, but look, something remains. We're speaking to you now and you hear that there's something of the impression of work well done and faithfully in places where goodness has been lived T.S. Eliot talked about going to sites where prayer has been proven valid. And he says, this sign is continuing to broadcast into the planet and you're picking it up. You know, that's not because you're a psychic intuitive. It's because it's broadcasting on a different bandwidth. And that, that bandwidth is really accessible to human beings. And that we need to engage and resume our place in the rightful order of things not only in this planet, but in a great overarching nest of worlds within worlds that has been described in our in our mystical traditions since the get-go, mm-hmm. from which we receive help and to which we owe a certain accountability that's produced through our living out of the highest paths of courage, transparency, and generosity. When I got up from that from the my muddy my muddy high altar step there i had no doubt how the election was going to go you know and many of my friends were shocked but i knew it already we were in for the great winnowing and so it's been it's been a 8 to 10 year journey into collective madness into polarization, into insanity, into not even knowing what truth is anymore. And at the same time, we're seeing in ways that are just unmistakable, the accelerating fruits of global warming, you know my kids and my grandkids in in a in a boarding school in california have been evacuated several times from a combination of mudslides and and firestorms and the weather patterns are erratic the polar ice caps are melting what do not we understand we're at the age of a 2500 year domination of the mental structure of consciousness as john Gebser would call it on which western civilization has arisen and is now falling Mm. and we don't know how to midwife our way into the next iteration that some people talk about it in great inflated terms like the integral age and uh non-dualism they throw all these big terms around and make it sound like a you know a panacea that we're almost achieving but meanwhile the rates of mental disease, pathology, trauma, suicide are skyrocketing, particularly among young people that say, "Why have babies? Why? How can you responsibly bring people into a sinking ship? So it's against uh, the, the stark background of what I've called the 10-turn Oracle. <laughs> <laughs> it's twin breadths of promise and 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 sternness that there is help but the situation is dire we are in a a time where everything that we think we have taken for granted in terms of human achievement human conscience human goodness are being turned upside down
0: mm-hmm.
1: and mm. to reclaim them you know to reclaim them is is an act of courage personally but also depends to an extent on having a roadmap broad enough and receptive enough to receive the help that's coming to us from a wider world that we're not even aware of anymore, for which this this planet is in its own funky way, the eye of the needle. There's something really precious and really painful, really difficult about our walk here. And everybody knows it. But Mm -hmm. we can reach for hope. So a lot of my work this, Elise, has been this year in offering some pretty challenging in-your-face workshops. I've just got back from one. We've we've launched a series of workshops, A Wisdom Inquiry into Evil. Mm. What is it? How does it come from? We had our first playing in West Virginia at Claymont Center. We'll be running, you know, in California in February and, and back in the American Southeast in North Carolina in April so we're we're working on that. Where does it come from? Not philosophically, but you know, how does it materialize yes. out of just guard uh. variety of human pain? And I just finished one called "The Right Use of Sexuality," as a transformational agent. And and mm. we've the common good. We've had a group that's explored the U.S. Constitution from the point of view of evolutionary consciousness. So a lot of the work I've been doing has been really practical trying to bring wisdom tools to bear on these realities that if we don't shift them, well, yeah. we're, we're, we're cooked, you know.
0: Let TEND Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hello com slash sale. And book your free consult today. All right, so there are three big directions I wanna go with you based on that. One, that vibrational frequency that you mentioned and in reading you and reading Llewellyn Von Lee, and reading Richard Rohr. And it feels to me, and I'm curious about your perspective here, obviously, but that historically, all of that light, all of that access was mediated through institutions like the church, primarily masculine structures, patriarchal structures, intentionally or not. And I won't take us on a massive Mary Magdalene tangent, but that's your your work on her is beautiful and stunning. And now we're starting to recognize that those structures need to, crumble, right? It's distributed through and available to all people or anyone who chooses to sort of try to awaken or elevate their vibration or consciousness in order to tap into this level of bandwidth. So there's that point that I wanted to make. And then the fact that you're going into evil, I'm very interested. And I think this is and I know everything about your work is non-binary, like there's no such thing. It's not good and bad. It's it's a different level of awareness where these things are darkness, shadow and light must coexist, or in sort of our job, right, to mix this darkness, go into the shadow and do this this work. Get Really getting my hands going here. But is your construct, the way that you think about spiritual power, evil, darkness, density, is it? Predicated on that Gurdjieffian world, where we're sort of along an axis or cord that gets progressively lighter and ruled by fewer laws, and then progressively, when we go down, denser and heavier. Is that still? Are you still on that track? Well, that map
1: is is not exclusively Gurdjieffian in origin. It belongs to the great chain of being things and we see the earliest signs of this always, you know, they're back in the, the headwaters of civilization. But what Gurdjieff brought to this mix when he tried to do his was that the old map was a completely what I'd call a redshift model. Mm-hmm. That things got as you went down, which meant more and more into form, things got Heavier, degraded in consciousness, more moving towards dissolution. and really, in a kind of clever way, introduced a blue shift model, you know, in which something is returned upward as well through what he called the third force. It's not just down, up, down, up. That's got that dialectical symmetry of traditional mm-hmm. models that are gap- that are all generated in the middle structure of consciousness. And he saw that there was a new dimension, which he called the reconciling force, which was not just the, the solution when two, two opposites get, you know, it's not like when you're when you're trying to decide in a jury who's right and who's wrong. It's not yeah. that, but it's like when you can hold the tension between the two opposites, something is born out of that spark, which then takes shape as an independent force, which allows the other two to come into mm-hmm. harmony it's often mm. called in the work third force and and gurdjieff was was able to show that how by working with this that the lower realms if you want to call it that were not lost and fallen and for, forbidden but had a definite part to play in in and through their very coarseness in yeah. how to get something else up that that brought through the process not through the product a dynamic equilibrium that allowed the whole thing to keep on chugging along so it it basically basic knocks it off of a binary model off of a binary platform into a spherical platform you know it's three dimensional now and it also gets rid of a couple of old sort of confusions that have attended these old kind of platonic maps and that is that coarseness is associated with form so that, the, so that the, the more incarnate you get, the more filled with form, the less conscious you become. These maps sort of implicitly link consciousness with, with dematerialization, which has left us absolutely hands tied in this world, literally. Because as long as we're saying the problem is the body, the problem, and we got to get, we got to liberate the the spirit from the dense, heavy world of matter, well, the planet can just go blow itself off. Right. It, you know, and you're able, we're able slowly to see that this isn't the case, that you can go down in terms of becoming more physically embodied without that requiring a drop in your consciousness, Levels of consciousness and levels of incarnation do not have to be the same thing. And it's a common shorthand that we use very, very dangerously in our spiritual practices. It's it's almost a universal assumption. You know, when people say, how do I become more spiritual? You get the picture, they do this. <laughs> and you can sort of see this whole kind of BB me up Scotty thing. You know, you never see a person, let's get more spiritual. You see them getting down into. a in a cesspool and shoveling up the, you know, the, the cesspool stuff. You never see that because yeah. because we haven't been able to think in that kind of broader way. So some of the most spiritual people bail out without even knowing they're doing it because their map doesn't really tell them how to integrate embodiment and care, deep, deep care and respect for the preciousness of this realm. We keep calling it fallen. Mm-hmm. And I wonder why we try and escape it. And transcend. It's like so but much language about transcending. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that Gurjeev does that I love that we work with the group is toward the end, he takes these up-down models, which are known officially as evolution, which means to go up, and involution to go down. And he turns them on their head, or he, he throws them into a tumbler so that involution for him which we usually use as synonymous with degrading you know you know is for him the same thing that god did in jesus when he sent his beloved son into the world it's like it's the gift of manifestation you fling things Mm -hmm. out into form so that they could show their nature and evolution occurs when you, you expend the, when you finally squandered all the life force there. And at the maximum point of feeling lack and separation, you started crawling your way back up to the source. And so he, he mixes them all up. And we nowadays use evolution in such a sort of quasi reverent way. To say we we must evolve you know if we're going to be saved as a species as if and evolving always means going to the higher and that always means spiritualization and leaving so the whole direction is just still pushed in and and he had them wrapped in a double helix every Mm. evolution includes its evolution and at the end on on either side uh you know it's oneness but by very different routes and they're both yeah. good analyses. One by complete self-concentration and implosion that you've become one at the top. By this, all of a sudden, all the the pretenses that that created the convention of separation are gone, and you implode into the oneness that was always there. And at the bottom end, by the complete self-giving, which is in what sense complete dissolution but the word dissolution has also been used in the monastic traditions and the mystical traditions to mean complete self-giving.
0: Mm. Yeah. Thinking about this idea of transcendence and lightness and, you know, all everyone doing psychedelics and blasting their way to source and it's like you can't live that's not the that's sure I, to each their own and those certainly I'm I'm a fan of plant medicine where where used judiciously. But I see a lot of people bypassing, right? And it feels like what we're being called to do is to take this vertical and spill it into the horizontal. It's not about escaping. It's about existing, bringing this into our daily, very ordinary lives and, and no longer compartmentalizing. You know, you see people who are sort of like, well, here's my spiritual life. And then here's my merchant of doom life, you know, and I go and pay for this over here. And instead of sort of, how do you live it? How do you live it every day?
1: Well, that's exactly true. And one of the things that I've, I've been working on is I as I look at this, you know, wonderfully intertwined involutionary evolutionary map that Gurdjieff provides us, is that to realize that, that in evolutionary spiritual practice, that's the ones that pulls it up, the emphasis tends to be on equating the, the the goal with having an experience of the goal. So, mm. that, you know, you attain, you know, the, the proof putting, it's an interior path as you concentrate yourself and you have an experience of oneness. And on the involutionary path, which is the path of outward pouring into the world, oneness is always attained as an as an integrated act of conscience with the mm. inward and the outward in harmony. In other words, it's a dance between interstate and external demand. So as Thomas Keating used to say so famously about centering prayer, the fruits of centering prayer are found in daily life. He offered that as an antidote to people who are saying, you mean I just sit on my chair and I don't have this wonderful experience of bliss and oneness? That would be a thought and I'd have to let it go? And what if I get a message from above? What if? And Thomas says, let them go. And, and they say, how can this be prayer? I'm not feeling one. Sometimes I'm doing nothing but battling thoughts left and right. And Thomas said, the fruits are found in daily life. In other words, you may be sitting on your prayer cushion having this subjective experience of how terrible you are at all this, and yet your spouse comes up to you and says, how is it that you've suddenly gotten so much easier to live with? Mm. Or how is it that you've suddenly slowed down enough to notice that there's a old person with bags crammed at the back of the subway car while you're sitting and having a seat there? You know? Right. You get your head out of your own interior state and notice. So the involutionary path is by nature because it demands its, its proof of the pudding in, in unified action. It's an integral path. It's after bedtime, the kids are asleep, and the moms are out to
0: play. We're Dina and Kristen, the duo behind the Instagram account Big Little Feelings. I'm Dina. I'm a child therapist and mom of two who nerds out on all things neurobiology and psychology. And Kristen is a parent coach who wrangles three kids on a daily basis, here to give it to us like it is. We weren't meant to do this parenting thing alone. Consider After Bedtime your village. Follow After Bedtime with Big Little Feelings on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So you mentioned help. You mentioned sort of this this frequency, this vibration, and and help. How do you think about that in the context of what's sort of ha- going to happen? What's the, the difference, I guess, almost between free will or collective free will or lessons that we seem to need to be learning together and apart versus what it should ideally be? Is there a distinction or... I don't know if I'm articulating that very well, but how much of this is essential sort of devolution, I guess, and how much of it is something that we could not experience if we were a little more awake?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, it's exactly that, that we we try and solve these problems with our philosophical mental mind, Mm -hmm. which is by nature a binary structure. And it was the great gift, you know, again, I just, I'm always talking about Jean Gebser, this wonderful guy who sort of gave the basic platform for Ken Wilber's evolutionary roadmaps. But Gebser's is is much richer and fuller and contexted in cultural transformation. And he he noted that that what really got the whole modern West started, you know, modern West beginning with Plato, was this capacity of the mind to stand outside itself and make, strategic models mm-hmm. and in, with it we started dividing things into two categories i i don't know when good and evil entered the planet you know ontologically but i know in terms of chronology it entered as a concept at the beginning at the headwaters of the mental structures of consciousness mm-hmm. or about 3000 bc before then people weren't thinking in terms of good and evil Mm-hmm. And we're thinking in terms of power and proximity and polarity and, you know, so we're locked within the concepts that we use. And the problem is that the mind, it's a very good tool, but its fundamental perceptual mechanism is based on separation. This not that. So it makes it very, very hard to perceive tunes or, you know, to anything in three dimensions. And And it's from the it's from the opening up of the other three dimensional senses in harmony with the mind that the that the capacity to perceive help registers, you know, and we aren't taught this. So the solution is not getting a better model, but bringing more of us online. And Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about these airy fairy. Well, you know, my psychic senses, my etheric body, my, you know, look at me, I can read crystals. I'm talking about the basic capacity to to be in what Gurdjieff called three-centered awareness, to be with your body as it moves, to be alert to sensation, alert to feeling and the difference between a feeling and emotion and your head. It doesn't require you to lobotomize your head. And when you're balanced in this kind of way, then it's amazing, you know, without any sort of extraordinary mystical experiences you simply pick up more of the universe and you see the interwovenness of everything and you begin to sense that we are somehow contained in a purposeful and compassionate intelligence within a coherent field and you can't put these in philosophical categories because they immediately get wrecked there. You mean we're talking about God? You know, the old mm-hmm. man with the beard? No. You mean we're talking about the Blessed Virgin? No. You mean we're talking about the great transcendent source? No. Because that's, again, an it. Mm-hmm. And and one of the reasons we can't throw away you know, what, what gets heard is gender exclusive language is because in gender, in our way of talking and seeing, is contained in the personal. And in the personal, you touch the intimacy. So we begin to experience when three, when three, our three simple centers are online and working together, we, we experience it for some silly reason. The world is not indifferent, cold, or chaotic. That we live within a sort of purposive, purposeful, coherent, compassionate, intelligent field in which we are invited to participate holographically. In other words, the heart, the part in the whole, and the whole in the part. My best analogy for this that I used way back in my mystical hope book, you know, now two decades two decades ago since I first wrote it, was the notion that the analogy of sailing in the fog which is something I do all too much living here on the coast of Maine. <laughs> so the idea is that on a bright, sunny day, you look at the lighthouse five miles out and say, oh, okay, I set my sight here, I sail for it. No problem. But when the fog sets in so thickly that you can't only, not only can you not see the lighthouse, you can't even see the bow of the boat. Now what? And at first for everybody, there's a moment of total panic. It's like, oh, help, help, where am I? You can't get oriented. But, but then you begin to realize that in order to find your way in the fog, which nobody likes, but many people do very well, even before there were instruments, GPSs to guide us, you bring in the underutilized senses. If you listen, you can hear the difference in the water when it's coming close to shore, when there's rocks, there's the crashing sound, you know, your gut can tell the difference in the current when you're, when you're in a deep sea swell or when you're at a choppy sea. Your smell, there was a guy, a friend of mine who sailed his sailboat in thick fog the whole length of the main coast and had to get around this treacherous point. And he said, well, he would tack in towards it and then tack out whenever he smelled the sheep there. You know, wow. and the smell, you know, the smell of pungent you know, pine trees. If you smell the smell of a spruce tree in the middle of a foggy thing, guess what? It means land is near, whether you can see it or not. So in other words, you begin to make your way, not by reference to where you are not, like out there with the lighthouse, but by reference to where you are. And the underutilized senses help you to sense exactly how you're situated in a now, which can be felt and which also has its intelligence. And one of the strange things about it is that it feels intimate. Mm. Yes. So that's, that's the kind of analogy that we have. We're, ever since the beginning of the mental structure of culture, we've been sailing for lighthouses five miles away, setting goals, going to them, dividing things into concepts, making new plans. And because it's a head alone, we can't smell, taste, and feel the sea swells of 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 a kind of divine coherence and i use the word divine simply to mean that it's larger and more pervasive than our theological concepts of it Mm. the world did not just come about randomly nor is there a tight master plan you know drawing us back there's freedom but there's it's freedom within a field that hangs together Mm. Do you feel, I mean,
0: I did not grow up within religion at all. And so I sort of approach and I recognize this is spirituality. This is a totally different dimension. But considering that this is a, a patriarchal culture that we live in with strong religious inclinations, do you think that, and you think about someone like Mary Magdalene and and her gospel, or that teaching being cast out, but this this more Gnostic sense of God is inside. God is with you. It's part of you. It's baked into you. It's an internal process instead of this external figure, you know, as you said, man with a beard somewhere else. Is that sort of the, the primary separa- separation wound to you? keeping people from engaging with this internalized
1: awareness? Well, I, I think it's the, the political, cultural perception of that these days mm. has formed a, a powerful barrier for quite a few people. As we watch up the dying shreds of a, of a patriarchy, which has betrayed itself in all sorts of ways, and people are angry. And people are angry at the way that that feminine power has been co-opted and colonized and dominated and suppressed. Mm -hmm. But it isn't as simple as that because it's really not about power itself. And I don't think it has anything to do generically with maleness or femaleness. Agree. Because I've seen female power structures recapitulate male structures and wind up looking just as ugly. Yep. It has to do with a level of consciousness. And all along there have been mystics of both male and female gender who've said the same thing, who've pointed to that God within. And at the same time that you have inquisitors and, and imperial popes in the church, you've also got the Beguines, you know, mm. the people of, in 14th, 15th century Germany with the most way out there non-dual mysticism that you've seen. And our contemporary Catholic church spawns Bernadette Roberts. You know, go figure. And and then you have the males like George Fox teaching the light of Christ in every man. You know, the man is how they said it then. And then the Meister Eckhart that as you move up the ladder of consciousness into what what i think is appropriately called integral consciousness if we could only agree on a definition it's not like gender is cancelled out or fused into one or ontologized like these are the only poles you know you know god is neither male nor female but the legitimate validity of each gender is upheld without being competitive mm-hmm. with being you know so it's you begin to see how the separations that have that have grown up in all the structures are valid because there's there's different flavors of wisdom of, of spiritual generat generativity that for a long long time inter- interact with physical femaleness and maleness they, they aren't finally the same as but they ride these horses for a long time yeah and in our for liberation and equality for all people, we've in a long way muddied in and neutered the generative forces that allow the, the kind of transformation to another thing to happen. Yeah. And is that that Gurdjieffian, even sort of the, the masculine and
0: feminine present in me, the interplay, not the binary, but the interplay or where they meet is, is that propulsive growth or that,
1: that that's the magic? The birth of something else, you know, and people <laughs> language it in different ways, and it depends on where you are. It's not exclusively an internal struggle. That's what Jung tried to do. You know, there was this animas and anima. You, you play the whole thing out as an inner drama. There's the male and me and the female and me. Yeah, that's true, but there's also the male outside me and the male inside me. And they just, mm-hmm. they're different ways of going at these fundamental polarities, and they work in and manifest in all sorts of different ways but i think the big problem with the patriarchy as it's as it's sorted out is that what it tends to defend is a level of consciousness that's too small yes to really incorporate the mystery that could save it and mm-hmm. and even today we're seeing it i mean i saw it big time during the you know covid when the church that sits in the possession of a mystical treasure of courage that says, whether I live or die, I am the Lord's. Immediately panicked into oh, oh, we gotta maintain safety for all the people, you know, and this is a really, really good thing. But they they got right in the middle of this World 48 fear and had nothing to say. Nothing mm. to say of real hope, you know. Mm. And the churches have tended to be the last holdouts with other people. I mean, in, in Boston, Logan Airport, people were sitting in the public house drinking, drinking their glasses of wine. And in the church, they were still withholding communion because of fear of contamination. You know, what? what is it? Uh, why, why have we not been able to access within the mystical body of Christ the, mm-hmm. the good news of, of eternal life? Lived in in our human flesh. So it's a it's a loss that has to put it's it's a loss of a level of consciousness. And when you lose a certain level of consciousness, maleness and female is gonna unplay just like it has in the history of Western civilization as a power struggle.
0: You mentioned World Forty Eight. Would you mind doing sort of a quick overview of of the world, I know it's hard to do a quick overview of the worlds, but what World Forty Eight is, and the potential of World Twenty Four, and 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 how that works—it's
1: a shorthand. It, it's a sort of Gurdjieffian inner track of the old map of the 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 great chains of being, and the the great chains of being maps, as I said, which are ancient. You know, you know, three to five thousand years old, and 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 shared in some manner in all cultures associated with the beginning of what what is called the perennial philosophy they all they all depict creation emerging sort of like a big bang out of the heart of a god of an absolutely fiery wholeness and then coming down into different realms you know that get progressively coarser and denser and Gurdjieffians, the Gurdjieffian tape is just to language them in numbers you know the other things call them the the, the logoic world, the the cosmic world uh, so they're levels of consciousness but they're also the levels of of materialization, the conditions that play out in each world and our world world 48 is sort of toward the bottom of the chain uh with with a couple of worlds, Beneath it, that grows stronger and stronger in the direction of heaviness and insentency. Just above us, uh, above, you know, we're we got to use that map shorthand. It isn't really above, mm-hmm. but but we'll we'll speak in those terms. The next one up on the 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 skewer ball of worlds is called by various names, but the name that sort of is settling is the imaginal realm, which is the lighter, and airier, and more unbounded being interpenetratingness of everything that sort mm. of fears in and out and and animates the, the the bits and pieces of our regular everyday world, just like light shining through a stained glass window takes all the bits and pieces that are all separate and pulls them together in a single picture. Mm. So it's a lighter, it's a lighter kind of awakened, coherent, vibrant field, just what we've been talking about earlier that interpenetrates and and infuses the sort of otherwise dull and separated and bits and pieces sort of nature of this reality. So it, it pulls it together as a harmonizing principle. Again, mm-hmm. like light coming through a stained glass window. It's not intended to destroy the window. Right. It's, it's intended to let the window show forth what it truly is.
0: Hmm.
1: And, and is that World 24,
0: a space that you visited in, in Tintern Abbey, is that those the moments when we're sort of in conversation a with 24. the
1: universe? Yeah, that was a World 24 visitation. And when Jesus uses the phrase, be in the world, but not of it, I think he's referring to that, you know, be in your world, do the things you have to. This brings us back to the conversation about action in the world we had earlier, but let it be conducted in a spirit of the light flowing through this. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And this is not by faking a bunch of behaviors that you think is spiritual. It's by being really open in the whole of your being to the possibility that it is spiritual. Mm -hmm. This world is, and sometimes to taste it, the people that taste that oneness, you know, in some way or another glow and levitate. Mm -hmm. These, These things that... You know, iconic and and spiritual tradition and art likes to portray, you know, that, that glowing light that emerges from beings that's supposed to be a sign of holiness. And sometimes you see them rising up. Well, these are just ways of talking about and depicting visually that they somehow are moving in this world with this sort of lighter, radiant, uplifting energy coursing through them. And we all know yeah. people do this. And they're often very, very... Normal ordinary people that are, you know, serving you coffee at the McDonald's. But they get it
0: mm-hmm.
1: in a deep way. And they're yeah. blessed to the world by the very quality of their presence.
0: Mm. Yes. And then world ninety six, we I feel like we we have some sense of that, right? Like we are are we slipping into world ninety six?
1: Yeah. World 96 was, was what the American nation officially became the day after the Trump election.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, It had been tending that way for a long, long time. I mean, it was founded in World 48. The founding fathers were, you know, some of them were, were, were hypocrites and connivers and racists and, you know, slaveholders and all the things we hurled at them, but they were also thoughtful human beings who listened to one another and tried to carve out, you know, the in, Enlightenment thinking is really quite amazing. It's intricate, it's rational. And so they they devised a brilliant structure of governance, sort of at the high watermark of what was, you know, what, what was capable in the time. And then they horse traded and bludgeoned their way into existence with it. But at at this point in our collective American journey, we've given up thinking for thought bites, and we've traded content for pizzazz and delivery. And we hurl epithets at each other and think in labels and acronyms. Somebody asked me today on a phone call what my PCP was, who my PCP was, and I got, who, what? You know, (laughs) (laughs) I can't keep track of all these things. It's this encoded, you know, Thought by behavior that is always clashing with each other and the the incapacity to form even civility, let alone unions of reason. When you see the the Senate stone wall, unable to form policy coalitions around around well, even who's the speaker of the house for <laughs> sake, you know, it's like it's like it's like power mongering and, and political polemic for nothing other than to polarize. Right. And- that's an abortion of the human capacity for thought, reason, and healing. And, and Donald Trump became its patron saint. And the country yeah. probably slid along because it makes money. And so to pull our country back to a place where we can have civil discourse with each other would be a great, great accomplishment. I mean, maybe the best we can shoot for at this, at this point in our in our common life.
0: Yeah. So when we think about sort of this tension, right, of if 48, and I recognize that people aren't necessarily even super awake in world 48, but when we think about sort of the downward trend of what we're experiencing, and then I think it's definitely woken up some people to to reach for 24. And is the idea that we're sort of energetically holding on and sort of trying to pull pull the collective pull each other up is that what's being asked of us or and do you feel optimistic about this
1: <laughs> i yeah i i think that what you're saying there is that yes there is a demand coming upon us for a higher collectivity mm-hmm. the the next level of action which will be a unifying action is a higher collectivity but we don't get what this means yet because we 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 look at the collective as somehow opposite of the in, individual i know and and so our models immediately take us either to communism you know or take us to bureaucracy where you know a, a thick blanket of mediocrity separates people from their bright ideas you know and we just don't understand apart from in some you know rare occasions what genuine collectivity is and higher collectivity. And the best example I can give you comes in an orchestra or a choir where you have all these wonderful individuals who each individually have voice and vocal training. And then you have some sort of piece of music like a Bach cantata begging to be sung. And people come together to sing it and they have a common aim, which Mm -hmm. is to deliver the music as beautifully as possible because that common aim is what they all want. But they can't arrive at it individually. You can be the best baritone in the world, but unless you've got a soprano and an alto there, you're you're singing to yourself. So we have to collaborate in order to make the music. And Mm -hmm. it's because we love the music, and we commonly love the music, that we become capable of deferring. And during World War II, of course, the the the, the gun to the head of Nazism and the countries of the world on all freedom disappearing was enough to forge a common aim. And and in America, the World War, you know, the, the old Rosie the Riveter pictures and people joining willingly in participating and having their hands clipped with rationing and things like that because they all gave to the common aim of freedom, and of a world that could be live in goodness. Mm-hmm. And and it's kind of interesting for the World War II vets that are still alive, still remember this as great, the greatest era of their life, because what they were drinking in was the sweetness of the love and the virtue and the nobility that is accessible to human beings when we can form these higher collectivities. Mm. But you can't get to them... By starting on World 48 and, and you know, just keeping raising platform upon platform, you can't legislate a, a platform that gets us to a higher collectivity. It just becomes repressive. Right. You can't over over legislate people, which is the problem the, the liberal progressives have never disco- discovered. Yeah. You know, it has to come from a, a deeper common awakening. And this is really hard to... To, to put your fingers on because it's by nature unmanageable. But you can begin to practice your way into it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's what this resurgence of people embarking upon spiritual practice, even just starting with meditation, is helping to carve a space where a, a higher collectivity may be able to organize itself once people are able to let go of their insistence on the lower collectivities.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful idea. And, and just this, I, I think, you know, when people get into this, oh, we're all one, and but then I am my own ego and it's me. And, you know, this is so difficult for people, but the idea of the orchestra and that common goal, as you said, and yes, you have your part to play. Like the music is incomplete without the full participation of every musician, but so seeing yourself as distinct and part of the collective, I think that that sort of metaphor really helps people understand the ask
1: and that you have to to bring yourself right. This isn't, yeah. and you don't less of you by doing that. You become more of you. And yeah. The problem is the, the limitation is right in the operating system of per- perception because we're, we're an age that, that more than any other age in any other structure of consciousness sees everything from the eye through the eyes of the separated individual mm-hmm. and my individual self-realization. And we even go at our spirituality that way, rapidly in the new age, my personal self-realization, because it's a filter of the way we set up the playing field. And it's I, my, my ego, who's going to transform. We don't get the idea because it overrides the operating system of perception. No, 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 no. It's your structure of perception that's going to melt. And along mm-hmm. with it, bye-bye ego and all your goals and all your images of yourself. But you'll still be here. And mm-hmm. you'll be conscious. And you'll be free. And you'll be larger and happier than you've ever been.
0: Wow, to live inside of Cynthia Bourgeau's brain, which we got to visit, even as much as she's pushing us towards a a non-brain conception of the world, a fuller sense of our wholeness, her brain is quite impressive. And it was hard to even know where to go because I could honestly interview her for 10 to 20 hours and feel like I've only barely scratched the surface of her understanding and teachings. I highly recommend her books. Some of them are more difficult than others, but they're all beautiful. And I'll work on creating notes for each of them on my website, which you can find on eliselunan.com. I wanted to touch again on the world quickly because I... I think that this conception, even as she mentioned, it's part of sort of the great chain of being and shows up in different cultures in different ways. But the way that Gurdjieff, or the way that actually, to be honest, she articulates Gurdjieff, I find Gurdjieff really, really difficult. I'm not advanced enough to understand him directly. So she's a wonderful um, interpreter. But one, I just wanted to touch on this she writes according to gurdjieff the two vehicles par excellence for actualizing this inner transformation are conscious labor and intentional suffering conscious labor is basically any intentional effort that moves against the grain of entropy ie against that pervasive tendency of human consciousness to slip into autopilot it means summoning the power of conscious attention to swim upstream against that pervasive lunar undertow, drawing us towards stale, repetitive, mechanical patterns, the siren call of World 96. And then, intentional suffering, she she writes, if conscious labor increases our capacity to stay present, intentional suffering radically increases the heartfulness of that presence operating in a slightly different quadrant of the human psyche, but with a parallel strategy of reversing the direction of flow, intentional suffering goes head to head with that well habituated pattern to move toward pleasure and away from pain. It invites us to step up to the plate and willingly carry a piece of that universal suffering, which seems to be our common lot as sentient beings in a very dense and dark corner of the universe. The size of the piece doesn't matter. What does matter, however, is that the suffering must be intentional, i.e. conscious, clear, and impartial. He is not talking about the useless and completely avoidable suffering caused by the frustration of our neurotic programs and illusions. He's talking about it as a very high practice. Well, that was a lot. And um, thank you for digging deeper into all of this with me. I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack newsletter. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive on Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at Lunen. Meanwhile, if you haven't already, please pre-order my book coming May 23rd. It's called On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good, and it's an exploration of the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available for now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.